0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander and as always I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witz University in Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you Kobus. Good afternoon and a very good evening in Beijing China to Cornelia Treeman who's joining us for the first time Cornelia is actually an expert on a Sino-Madagascar relations and it's the first time in the show's history in three years that we've talked about Madagascar so I'm very excited about this uh, and so a very very good evening and a warm welcome to the podcast uh, Cornelia.
1: Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you to this evening.
0: And just to give you a little bit of background on Cornelia, she is uh, actually launching her own research firm uh, in Beijing, ID Research. Uh, prior to that, she worked at the UNDP, at UNICEF. And, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, you completed your Ph.D. in Sino-Madagascar relations uh, at SOAS, right?
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: And Ph.D.'s all done, everything, paper submitted, defended, all good to go?
1: It's all good to go.
0: Nice. Well, <laughs> we're using, I think, some of your research from your PhD for the foundation of our of our discussion tonight. Now, I have to be honest with you, when the topic of Sino-Madagascar relations was suggested by Kobus, I, I wasn't that excited about it, <laughs> because it's not like there's a lot of oil, there's not a lot of geopolitical kind of pressure, this isn't South Sudan, this isn't big labor disputes as we have in South Africa. So I was thinking, what makes this kind of interesting and special to focus on? Madagascar, then complete head blown. uh, You find out by looking at her research that Madagascar has the third largest Chinese population uh, anywhere in Africa. Um, And then again, another head blow for uh, Mauritius is the second. Of course, South Africa is the is the largest Chinese population, and by virtue of the fact that the Chinese. Have such a large community in in, in Madagascar, you know, a community that has quintupled in size over a decade, from 2001 when it was just 20,000 people all the way up to now, estimated somewhere to be around 100,000 people. Now, remember, Madagascar, for those of you who are not familiar with it, uh, it's that island on the far east coast of Africa. So it's not a very big place. So 100,000 people, in my opinion, uh, probably stands out quite a bit. We're going to get Cornelia to talk about that. Let me just give a few key kind of talking points before we get into our into our conversation. The the Chinese have been coming to Madagascar uh, since the 1800s and once again That belies another stereotype of the Chinese in Africa, that this is a relatively new phenomena. They came as laborers in part imported by the French, but at the same time also there were private entrepreneurs that were coming to kind of find their fortune, just as we've seen in the past two or three decades there as well. So Cornelia, let's just get started by talking about the the diversity of the population. And that was one of the key themes in your research that came out was it really challenged the notion of the Chinese anywhere in Africa, or anywhere in the world for that matter, as being a homogenous group. And you in particular focused on two distinct kind of categories, les anciens and les nouveaux, the old and the new. So tell us a little bit about those distinctions and how the different groups get along in this kind of melting pot of Chinese culture there.
1: Well, as you mentioned, yes, Madagascar has the third largest community of resident Chinese. And I think it's really important to emphasize that the the resident Chinese community is different from this new influx of Chinese migrants that we've also seen coming to many other parts of Africa. As you uh, already kind of discussed, the ori- the Chinese originally first came to Madagascar in the mid-1800s. Many of these came as independent migrants directly from China, but also from the neighboring Mascarene Islands, such as Mauritius and Reunion. They had been brought there by um, British colonial authorities to work on sugar plantations. And many of them defected and sought, to, sought opportunities further west and now, ended hold, up in Madagascar. Hold,
0: hold on, this is something I didn't understand in your writing and what you say. When you say brought there, you know, they were brought to California to build the railroad, but they were brought there as slaves. Were they brought there in, against their will? Were they brought there, you know, as indentured servants? What was the context for how the British and the French brought them to this part of the world?
1: Um, they were not brought as slaves. They were brought as contract laborers. So it, it's a set contract for a set duration, and many of them were actually repatriated back to China at the end of these contracts.
2: You know, the the, the projects that they were working on were, were were those projects part of of greater British colonial, you know, kind of expansion, or was, were they were they working on on private kind of uh, m- you know uh, projects for for people who were already living in Madagascar?
1: Uh, well, I can't speak for the British colonial authorities in the Mauritius, but in Madagascar, the French had brought uh, the Chinese over to work on infrastructure projects. Specifically, Chinese contract laborers built the, the big railroad that connects uh, Antananarivo, the capital in the central highlands, to the big port town on the country's eastern coast. So- and at the time... I was just going to say at the time when the when the French first colonized the island uh, Madagascar has 18 different ethnic groups so there wasn't much social cohesion there was quite a bit of resistance against the French um imposition so for the French, it was a lot easier to, to bring in these Chinese to work on these projects.
0: So these original migrants that came either as part of the kind of contract labor or as the uh, – on their own volition in the 1800s and 1900s, uh, today are the – you know, those are the ancestors of what we'd call the old, the, the anciens, as you, as you kind of pointed out. Then we've got the new that are coming. And talk to us a little bit again about the the distinctions between the two, how the cultures may be different, even linguistically, uh, the differences that seem to to exist. And and what kind of relationship these two migrant groups, or they're not migrant, actually, the established uh, Mm -hmm. and and the new migrants and what they're like.
1: Well, I would categorize the relationship between the two groups as tenuous. I think there is a sense of a, a shared Chineseness there. But ultimately, the the Ancien, or the resident Chinese, views themselves as Malagasy first and Chinese second. They speak Cantonese, they speak Malagasy and French, and they've integrated very well with the local population. The new Chinese, on the other hand, are primarily um, temporary migrants from from Mandarin-speaking areas in China. So there's a huge um, linguistic divide between the two groups, which I think... Which I think um, informs their relations. At the same time, the, there's some competition there as well in the economic sphere. And I think the the resident Chinese community, there's some fear there that the new Chinese are coming in and, and you know taking over where they had previously established themselves, which is not the case. But that's kind of the feeling that I had there.
0: You know, Cobus, as as when we talked with Howard French, and this was one of the themes of his book. Um, There's this misperception throughout much of Africa, but other parts of the world as well, that the Chinese are a kind of homogenous group. And one of the things that you oftentimes hear from Chinese migrants is, A, they try to avoid other Chinese migrants, and B, um, they oftentimes, you know, don't get along. And just by virtue of the fact that they have a shared culture, language, and background doesn't necessitate they actually get along. And I think that's interesting to hear what Cornelius is telling us about and some of the themes that we've picked up in some of the other discussions with Yun, Yunjun Park, as well as with Howard French on Chinese migrant populations in Africa.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting for me, you know, to, to, to hear that as well, because it, it echoes so much with, with situations in South, in South Africa, which also had, a, you know, kind of an earlier Cantonese wave of immigration, and then a later Mandarin-speaking wave. Um, and also, you know, kind of those those uh, communities don't necessarily, you know, kind of, uh, you know, they're not, they're not a cohesive community. Um, Cornelia, I, I wonder, like, economically, how are the two communities different? Like, which sectors do they work in, and to which extent is there any economic links between these the new community and the old community?
1: Sure. The, so the resident Chinese community first established itself along the country's eastern coast in the agricultural trade. They served as middlemen between Malagasy peasants and uh, French industrialists. And they still are very strong in, in the vanilla sector, for example, in the coffee sector. Uh, over the years, they have diversified in, into other sectors of the economy and they 've urbanized as well. But the old Chinese community is really known for for their activities in the agricultural domain. The new Chinese migrants, on the other hand, as as elsewhere in Africa, are primarily active in the real and in, in the retail sector um, in the importation of manufactured goods produced in china so there's not actually much Competition between the two groups, and I think a lot of the the uh, the fact that the resident Chinese community is is afraid of these new Chinese migrants taking over some of their sectors is a bit unfounded and just um, I think it just plays out of this perception that there is that these new Chinese migrants are you know taking over the economy and crowding out local producers.
0: You wrote that that the that the Chinese are actually among all of the foreign communities in in Madagascar um, are the how did you write it the, the least unpopular, <laughs> so they're not they're the most favored but in a very kind of you know backhanded passive aggressive way of saying it, um, and I'm I, I'm curious about that in part because now that the new generation of Chinese are coming in into the retail sector which we've seen in other parts of Africa, particularly in Namibia, in Malawi, where there's been a backlash against the Chinese in retail because it's displacing uh, people at the lower rungs of the economic ladder. And also it's challenging uh, producers of, say, textiles and and, and, and kind of low te- low technology goods because the Chinese imports are so cheap. And I'm wondering how that's affected their popularity or, as you talked about, the least unpopular uh, group of, of of migrants or in, of, of non-Malagasy populations who are there?
1: Well, I think I should clarify that by least unfavorable, I meant the resident Chinese community and not so much the newer migrants. Ah,
0: okay, again, I'm making the mistake of actually clumping them together. So, um, okay, so so differentiate for us. The least unpopular or least unfavorable is the resident. How do then the um the newer migrants kind of rate in 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 terms of local relations with the local communities
1: well i think despite the existence of of positive impacts that do result from the presence of these new chinese migrants um their presence is generally perceived of as quite negative i think these perceptions are shaped by a number of factors which have to do with both a lack of social interaction as well as interaction in the marketplace So these perceptions are structured by by labor relations, by media coverage of Chinese traders and companies, by alleged Chinese involvement in the smuggling of gemstones, rosewood, and other endangered species, and more generally, a perceived disrespect by Chinese traders and businessmen for local laws, customs, and, and what's been described as the Malagasy way of doing business. And this was iterated to me several times in many different interviews. I, I would also like to mention, though, while I think there are definitely real issues that need to be addressed, especially in the realms of labor relations and environmental concerns, the Chinese, I've, I found that the Chinese do sometimes take on the role of scapegoats. So uh, while these perceptions are negative, I do think they can sometimes be blown out of proportion
2: um so recently there was a late last year there was an incident um in Madagascar where a Chinese oven sugar factory was burned to the ground and looted um and there was you know big altercations between striking workers and then uh, the police, which left two people dead. Um, I wonder if you could put that incident into the context of both this, these kind of labor problems and then the scapegoating of the Chinese community.
1: Sure. I mean, I was actually quite shocked by by the events that occurred there myself. This was not the first time that there have been altercations between Chinese employees and their uh, sorry Malagasy employees and their Chinese employers, but this was certainly the first time that there have been deaths. And from what I read, um several Malagasy actually stabbed a policeman to death. I mean, that's that's quite shocking and I think it speaks to to several different issues here. I think there's definitely a, a discontent with with the way that the Chinese company has been managed. These um, employees were – the tensions date back actually from April 2014 when the employees had already begun talks with Malagasy officials for higher wages, for um, I think the integration of, of seasonal workers into permanent staff, and notably for the departure of the Chinese laborers. They had begun protesting already in, in November then, and I guess it, it just kind of mounted and built up until it exploded in December. But I think on top of that, I think this speaks to an underlying discontent among the population with the the economic and the political situation on the island. We have to remember that Madagascar is one of the poorest countries in the world. It has been under significant political upheaval for Five years now, and they had four years of, of a transitional government, and the new president has been in power for a little over one year now. But the economic situation is still very dire. So I think there's a lot of frustration there. Um, at the same time, from what I understand, this incident is also being elevated to a political level, with rumors circulating that the protesters had actually been supported by rival political factions. Hmm. I have found that the Malagasy are actually quite a peaceful people, and often when these demonstrations and riots occur, they are they are sometimes stoked by by political entities pursuing an agenda so I think there 's definitely some of that at play as well
0: yeah you know it's, it, it echoes a little bit of some of the the situation that we saw over the past couple of years. Uh, in, in Zambia as well, where both the Chinese were a political pawn in, in elections and in political instability as the rise of Michael Sada, the late president. He, he was very effective at using the Chinese as a, as a pawn. Uh, later, he was a big advocate of the Chinese when he was in power, but when he was an opposition leader, uh, very much so. And then, of course, in the column mine, uh, Kobus and I have talked about this a number of different times where there was violence there and there was labor problems. And, uh, and I guess it brings the question up when we think about the the incident last December, in in the sugar factory. In what ways are the events and the trends and what's happening with the Chinese in Madagascar similar and different to what's happening with the Chinese elsewhere in Africa?
1: I think there's a lot of similarities there. Um, Madagascar is unique in the sense that it does have this large resident community um, and and just by its location, the fact that it's kind of off to the side. But I think a lot of the things we are seeing there are are pretty similar to elsewhere in Africa. As I was reading this these stories about um the incidents at the sugar factory, exactly Zambia came to my mind as well. So I, I think we're seeing a lot of the same issues there.
2: Um, do, do you have any kind of uh, perception of how um, how Madagascar as a society sees itself in the context of a new emerging and dominant china especially you know kind of uh, since since the the circulation of this of a new meme that china wants to become much more active in the Indian Ocean community? Um, I, I assume that that must have really actually started after your your fieldwork has already been done but like I wonder if you have an idea of how so how they, whether they see that as a, as a kind of a promising development for the future or whether they're kind of scared and, and upset by that.
1: When I was doing my research there, it was uh, 2010 until 2012. And at the time, there had actually been talk of the Chinese setting up a military installation in the on the northern tip of the island in Diego Suarez, which used to be a French military installation. I don't think this has actually come to fruition, but it, it definitely points to, to China's interest in the region. I mean, the Indian Ocean region is is very important for China. It's a very important shipping lane. Um, uh, The Americans have a base in the Seychelles, I think. So there's definitely security concerns there. There's economic concerns there. And um, I think this is only set to grow in the future. And actually, early on in the talk, um, Eric, I heard you mention that Madagascar doesn't have any oil. But in fact, there is a lot of oil exploration going on there. The
0: exploration, it's not an exporting country, a major exporting country as of yet, right?
1: Yeah. No, it's not, not of yet, but there's a lot of exploration and there was a lot of excitement about it and there's a lot of natural resources there. So I I definitely think China has its
0: eye on it. Well, it's certainly in that whole East African region over there. I mean, Uganda is coming, Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania... Um, you know, if you if you believe the hype, they are definitely the new kind of hot spot for for for, for hydrocarbons. So there's a lot of excitement off the coast there, and I would imagine that Madagascar is probably going to get mm-hmm. kind of pulled into that. Let me ask you one final question, or last question of the show, and just kind of take advantage of your of the fact that you're sitting in Beijing. And, you, you know, and that's a rather unusual, you know, kind of spot to be in for someone who's done research in Madagascar. And I'm curious when you talk to, 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 to Chinese in, in Beijing, both either at a policy level, uh, the think tanks uh, or the guy on the street. Obviously, most people will not have any opinions about Madagascar. But I'm curious to kind of get your, your kind of, you know, 10,000 meter view of what it's, you know, what the perceptions of, the Afri- of, of China and Africa are from Beijing.
1: Sure, I'm actually really glad you asked that question because it's been super fascinating being in China now. I I ended up here through a variety of means, and now I'm here, and it's it's just so interesting to see this side of it. And actually, when I was working at UNDP on on South-South cooperation, I worked with the Chinese Ministry of Commerce on their on their Africa policy and on some of their projects there, and it was just it's been so interesting seeing this side of it. And one thing that stood out for me in particular is. Um the fact that this china's approach to its relations with africa is is still very nascent it's very much still evolving and and China is itself trying to figure out you know what its best practices are or what it should do or what it should not do so I think while there is room for a lot of improvement i think I think at the same time it has to be remembered that China itself is in some respects still a developing country as well and it's it's trying to figure out the best way to engage Africa itself.
0: Well, Cornelia, thank you so much for joining us today. Cornelia Treeman uh, is the founder and head of, let's see, hold on, head of research at ID Research Group, her own research firm that you're kind of getting off the ground in Beijing. Uh, One of the few uh, specialists on Sino-Madagascar relations, I really encourage you to kind of search out on Google to find some of the work that she's done. If people want to stay in touch or even read some of your work and and kind of follow up on these, uh, on on Sino-Madagascar relations, what would be the best way for them to stay in touch with you?
1: Well, I have a presence on on Facebook and LinkedIn, but the best way maybe to to see my papers would be on academia.edu. Um, I have links to uh, two of the papers that I've published, uh, talks that I've given, and my contact information is on there as well.
0: Once again, uh, Madagascar is home to the third largest Chinese population in all of Africa. So it is significant. And it's got these unique characteristics that make it absolutely fascinating. And Cornelia really details them very, very nicely. I was just commenting to Kobus before the show how your writing style isn't kind of boring, dull academics. So even if you're not a professor <laughs> or a PhD candidate, you will enjoy reading her, you know, Cornelius' work. So that's, and as a non academic, I say that as the, as the utmost compliment. Uh, you know, not to diss, by the way, Cobus, you and other academics, because I know we have a large listening yeah, group yeah. in academics. But, <laughs> and uh, Cobus, if people want to read your boring uh, writing, what's the best way that they can stay in touch with you?
2: <laughs> I'm on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And I'm also on Twitter at Stadnesque. It's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. As
0: Kobus said, we have a Facebook page, 260,000 people from all over the world uh, joining us every day for a conversation on China-Africa relations. Kobus and I are posting the top headlines. It's almost like a news feed. Uh, every three to four hours, we're we're putting things up. So if you just want to kind of check in and see what's going on, this is a great way to do it. Also, we've just launched our brand new – actually, it's not – Brand new anymore, Cobus. It's up for about a month now. uh, Our new (laughs) newsletter. Uh, So we're up to almost 500 subscribers all over the world. And uh, every week we send a digest out of uh, what we think are the best stories of the week in China Africa news, including some of our podcasts, but more importantly, news from across the web. If you'd like to sign up for that, just head over to our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. There's sign up buttons all over the site. And of course, if you want to follow this podcast, the best way to do it, either head over to SoundCloud.com slash China Talking Points, or much easier, just go to iTunes, type in China Africa Project, and there we are, and press subscribe, and we'll be with you every week. We'll be back again soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.